the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, we look at various tribes and their early compromises, which will cause them to stumble for generations. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 1, verse 30. Once again, that's Judges chapter 1, verse 30. You want to enter heaven in style? Do this. Do this. You want to finish well? Then give diligence. Don't ever become spiritually lazy. Then you will. This is how we enter heaven well. Unfortunately, most of the tribes of Israel do not finish well, won't continue well, and many of them, they don't even make good starts. So we go to Judges chapter 1 again, and we look at verse 30 as we get to the tribe of Zebulun, and then after that, the tribe of Asher. So Judges 1, 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributary. So again, not only did uh, Manasseh make a deal, a treaty with these five cities, but Zebulun made a deal where their enemies became forced labor too. Then verse 31, neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alab, nor Akzib, nor of Helba, nor of Aphek. I mean, we got a long list here, nor of Rehob. But now here's a little bit of a different twist here. The Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So Zebulun, they do what Manasseh did. They make a treaty where their enemies become cheap labor, but Asher full-blown embraces them and intermingles with the enemy. The word there, dwell among, means to live in the midst. Now, this is the first time since Israel crossed the river where we see Israelites happily coexisting side by side in the land with unrepentant idolaters. And again, why did they do this? Spiritual laziness and self-deception. For they did not drive them out. There's a little bit something more definitive there. They did not. They simply chose to disobey the Lord. They didn't see the need to obey the Lord here. They thought they had a better way, and it was to dwell among them. See, disobedience always stems from not really believing what God says. I'm sure they looked and they said, well, these guys aren't so bad. You know, we kind of like having them as neighbors. We're not going to drive them out. And Obviously, God doesn't want you to drive out your neighbors. That's not the correlation I'm making here. 
I want you to love your neighbor. But are you metaphorically doing that in a sense? You know, is there something in your life that God's saying to get rid of? And you're going, I don't see the need. Why? Like, I mean, this is working. It's, it's, we happily coexist. I still have my Christian life and I coexist with this and everything's fine. Everything may be fine now, but it won't stay that way. Do you know who eventually came from this region of Zidon and Tyre? Slightly insignificant woman named Jezebel. And due to not just the fact that they allowed them to stay there, but the intermingling and friendship, due to that friendship, she ends up becoming the queen and brings full-blown Baal worship into the north. So much so that God states that there were less than 10,000 believers in Israel during that time because of her influence. I would say that that was not a good decision, being friends with them even though everything looked fine right then and there. See, one of my biggest deceptions is thinking I have compromise under control. Never have it under control. You're never the one in control of that scenario. It's impossible. So don't make that mistake. Verse 33. Look at the tribe of Naphtali. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but he dwelt among the Canaanites, the same thing, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth and Beth Anath became tributaries unto them. So Naphtali makes the same mistake as Asher with a, a couple cities. And, and then, you know, they also make the same mistake of Zebulun with those same cities that they, you know, make them forced labor. And again, what does this show me? That Naphtali decided they knew better, with, better than God about how to deal with each of these cities. You know, people often say, well, you know, I don't think right and wrong are as clear as the Bible makes it out to be. Actually, they are. They are. It's really clear. See, the problem doesn't lie in the clarity of Scripture, but in the fact that we don't have all knowledge. That's where the problem lies. It's not that Scripture isn't clear. The problem is we don't have all knowledge. And this makes us very apt to miss important things when we try to deduce if something is dangerous or whether it's safe. If we try to deduce if something is right or something is wrong. So we take our limited knowledge and we put all that together and we go, well, I mean, they look like nice neighbors. Why would we drive them out? You know, or whatever the compromise might be. And we decided to go, well, God, I think you're wrong. I don't think that you're as clear about this as you seem to be. The reality is God's very clear. So while someone who follows another God or embraces a wicked behavior may seem like a nice, harmless person to us, there is an arrogance when we make that deduction, that assesses them as okay, even though God says they aren't. Do you understand what I'm saying there? There's an arrogance to us when we do that. In fact, that mentality betrays something very important about our, our assessment. Because the Bible declares that none are good, not one. So my problem isn't, my problem isn't that I think, well, I disagree with the Bible. I do think all roads lead to heaven. Or I disagree with the Bible. I think homosexuality is okay. My problem is, is that I think people are basically good. And that because I'm basically good, I have the ability to identify when others are too. Do you see the flaw in the argument? I'm not basically good. So I don't have the capability to look around and go, oh, they're good. And they're good too. Everybody's good. Everybody gets a good tag, you know? I don't have the ability to do that because I'm not good. 
So I don't have the ability to properly assess what's good. It's why I need a divine being who knows everything to tell me what's good. My job is not to identify people as good or bad. That's not even my job as a Christian. They're good. They're bad. That's not my job. My job is to preach the gospel to every creature because nobody's good. To give them God's message of truth and grace because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all are loved by a gracious God who sent his son to die for us. That's my job. Not to look and go, well, I think, I think there are good homosexuals. Maybe homosexuality is not really wrong. No. There are no good homosexuals because there's no good anybody. You know, and, and that's what I hear the argument, but I've worked, I've worked with them. I think they're okay. And I've seen their marriage and I think, I think they treat each other well. That may all be true, but it's not up to you to determine who's good because no one's good. God had already said who's good. Nobody. So you can't look at them and go, well, I think the rest of their life looks good. So surely this can't be bad. It's bad. Just like my sin's bad. Just like all sin is bad. So just like me, I need a savior. They need a savior. Just like I need to repent. Somebody who's doing something wrong needs to repent. So I ask you, do you agree with God's assessment of humanity? Or do you agree with your assessment of humanity? Are you more like Naphtali? Now, one tribe's problem wasn't that they didn't go in on the offensive. It was that their enemy attacked first. Look at verse 34 of the tribe of Dan. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down into the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in Shaalbim. Yet the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. And the coast of the Amorites was from the going up to Akrabim from the rock and even upward. Now the Amorites here, that's a generic name for Canaanites. And in this case, the type of Canaanite it was, was the Philistines, who dwelt in that valley along the Mediterranean coastline. Now, we already know they had chariots because Judah gave up when they, they couldn't drive them out. The chariots were too strong. They gave up. Well, apparently after Judah defeated the three royal cities in their territory, the two northern royal cities of the Philistines that were in Dan's land said, uh, we're not waiting somebody for somebody to drive us out of our cities. We're going to go on the offensive. And so it says they forced the children of Dan into the mountain. The word there forced, it means to squeeze into a confining space. And the confining space was that hill country that was the eastern part of Dan's land. Now, remember, what did Dan do? They got the last pick, the last piece of land. And it was the land that nobody wanted. And so when they saw their land and that they had to deal with Philistines, they said, uh-uh. Half of them said, we're going elsewhere. We're going to go find our own land. So when you consider the fact that half the tribe is already gone, it put them at a disadvantage. And so the Philistines saw that disadvantage and the Philistines attacked. They won those early battles and they secured the valley. So much so that anytime Dan tried to make a move to take that land back, they stood their ground. And thus, little by little, they actually started moving into the hill country too. For it says the Amorites would dwell, the later they would dwell in Mount Heres and in Aijalon and in Sha'albim. So they began to start driving the tribe of Dan out. So this was rough. This was really rough. And they were in this spot because their brothers abandoned them. Now, this is what happens when a Christian abandons the body of Christ. Don't hear what I didn't say. I didn't say this is what happens when somebody leaves Calvary Chapel, Orlando. (laughs) 
when somebody comes to me and says, hey, we're going to go to another church. If it's a solid church, I'm like, I'm going to miss you, but God bless you. But when somebody just leaves, they're in effect doing the same thing. They're doing the same thing. They're abandoning their family. And because of that, it leaves us weaker and more susceptible to attack because we no longer have everything we need to succeed. You know, the purpose of the body of Christ is found in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that we all might come to a place of maturity so that everyone is using their gifts, everyone is doing their part, so that we are a healthy body that is edifying itself in love. It's a paraphrase. You can read it on your own in detail. But that's what the body of Christ exists for. So when we come together, our job is to be instructed in maturity, to minister to one another so we can all come to maturity. We all do our part, and the body of Christ is healthy, um, uh, edifying itself in love. So if someone decides to leave, well, then we're missing a part, aren't we? We can't be as healthy as God wants us to be, and we cannot achieve that success of every part edifying itself in love. So don't do that. We need you. You know, if, and if this isn't your home church, your home church needs you, you know? They might be saying, you don't understand, Pastor. Well, God gave me a raw deal. Or my, my enemy's too hard. Or I can't do this. You know, you don't know what I've been through. Well, may I gently say that none of that's true? Like, God doesn't give raw deals. And your enemy isn't too hard because the King of Kings is fighting for you. And you can do this because the Scripture says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. God cannot fail. And if God be for us, who can be against us? You say, I understand that, Pastor Will, but it's not God that failed me. It's the church that failed me. It happens. Sadly, because we're all still in these bodies, it does happen. But you have to give them an opportunity to step up to the plate in the future. Dan wasn't alone. Yes, half of their own tribe abandoned them, but they weren't alone. Because look at the last half of verse 35. Yet, despite all these failures, all the abandonment and, and the cost they paid for it, yet the hand of the house of Judah prevailed. They were victorious for them. They came to their aid. They came to help. Dan wasn't alone. Other brothers did come to help eventually. But here's the sad part. Because Dan had already checked out, they didn't respond properly to that victory. For it says, so that they became tributaries. Not to Joseph. They became tributaries to Dan. They made them made a treaty with them where they became cheap labor. They made a deal with the Philistines instead of finishing the job. And that ended up hurting them in the long run. For it says in verse 36, that the coast of the Amorites, the Philistine influence, was from the going up to Akrabim, from the rock and upward. Now, if Akrabim sounds familiar, first off, you're the best like person at this church ever. Because we only covered it really briefly when we gave the tribal boundaries for Judah when you were probably snoring. You know, as I'm pointing at a map and showing you where everything is and whatever, and you're going, oh, dear Jesus, get me through the book of Joshua, this part. You know, that's when we last saw Akrabim. It means the scorpion pass. And it's all the way south of the Dead Sea. Now, if, again, if you know Bible maps, you're thinking, but the land of the Philistines is by the Mediterranean Sea. Correct, Amundo. 
How in the world were they having influence all the way down by the Scorpion Pass south of the Dead Sea? That's in Judah's territory now. See, this compromise didn't just affect Dan. It affected Judah, and it explains later on how the Philistines became so powerful and such a force that Israel could not defeat. Guys, checking out when the church fails you is never the right answer. It doesn't fix anything, and it only exposes both you and others to more damage from the enemy. Checking in, that's the way we fix those wrongs. That's how we can all grow into maturity. In Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14, it's no coincidence that Paul challenges a church that was struggling with, you know, hurts and wounds and failures with these verses when he says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. What do we put on? Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. And if you still attend this church, you know how to forbear because you put up with me. Forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, that sounds like a pretty tall task right there, but above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfectness or maturity. So if you get wounded or hurt, you got to fight fire with love, with forgiveness, patience, and grace. Doesn't mean we ignore sin. I go to people all the time and I say, listen, what you did hurt. It was wrong. You're rude. You're mean. It's okay. I love you. And I'm ready to move forward. Where do we go from here? I'm sorry. Well, then we're good. Let's move forward. Doesn't that sound a lot better than all of us running in separate directions when we get hurt? Sounds a lot different. Sounds like the world might see something different if we live that out. Now, God can't ignore disobedience. So he sends an angel, interestingly, an angel to rebuke the nation. Chapter 2, we're just going to do the first five verses. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. I always, like, do you ever read the Bible and you go, what did that look like? You know, like, like, did all of a sudden you see this, like, big, huge, strong guy just shows up in Gilgal and he's just making his trek up and people are like, what's going on? And, you know, they just follow him up there. It doesn't say what happened. I don't know what happened, but it was enough to get everybody's attention because we see that everybody's there when he speaks. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, again, while every reference to the angel of the Lord doesn't refer to Jesus, sometimes that title does refer to a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We know it can't be God the Father because no man's seen the Father at any time. We know it can't be the Holy Spirit because he doesn't have a physical form. He's spirit. So the only person it can be is Christ. It can be Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. We see this on multiple occasions in the Old Testament. Now, Bochim means the place of weeping. It's not its original name. We don't know the original place they come to. They give it this name because of what happens here today. So whatever the location, the nation came to hear the words of this angel, this messenger from God. And he said to them, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, prophets 
sometimes spoke for God like this, where they spoke, but it was God speaking through them. Angelic messengers, for whatever reason, never speak like this because it's way too easy for human beings to mistake them as God and start worshiping them. And so we always see them say, hey, the Lord says. They don't ever say, I say. They don't ever speak in that sense like the prophet might. So the fact that the angel's talking like this is a pretty pretty clear indicator that this is the Lord himself speaking to Israel. Um, And so he says to them, I made you to go up out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you to the land which I swear to your fathers. And I told you that I would never break my covenant with you. I I love the way the Hebrew actually phrases this. It says, I won't violate my covenant into all eternity. Isn't that cool? For, For as long as time goes, and even beyond that, I will never violate my promise to you. That's a pretty powerful promise, isn't it? And God had been faithful to it thus far. He kept his side of the covenant, but they had violated their side in just a few years. Look at verse two. And you shall make no league, no treaty with the inhabitants of this land. Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, and Naphtali, four tribes violated that command. You shall throw down their altars. Ephraim, Asher, and Naphtali violated this command by allowing unrepentant Canaanites to live amongst them. So he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? That's a legitimate question. And it's one that points out the absurdity of their decision. What rational person would disobey the Lord after all he'd done for them? The only answer is, is that we're not reasoning properly when we ignore his word and we compromise, right? I mean, because a rational person wouldn't do that. So the only answer to that is we aren't reasoning properly. And that poor thinking leads to poor decision-making, which leads to sin. See, when we decide to ignore God's word and allow compromises, we become those who make decisions based more on our feelings and our cravings than God's word. And the problem is our feelings and cravings, I don't know if you figured this out, but they are powerfully deceptive. Powerfully deceptive. In James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, James talks about this when he says, he says, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and he's enticed and snared, trapped. And then when that lust has conceived, it brings forth sin and sin when it is finished brings forth death. Do not make that mistake, my beloved brothers. Don't make the mistake of being deceived by your feelings and your cravings. Now, because they'd chosen to disobey the Lord, he says, I have to discipline you now. Wherefore, verse 3, Judges chapter 2, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. This is the decision I made. I'm not going to drive them out now. But they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. You know, all their victories came from the Lord, right? So without his help, now they're not going to win anymore. And as God promised in Numbers 33.55 and Joshua 23.13, they would become thorns in their sides. This should not have been a surprise to them because God keeps all of his word, not just the happy promises, you know, not just the happy promises. You know, we don't usually see the promise up on, on, our, on, our, on our, our fridge. The nation that forgets God, he will judge, right? 
mean, you don't usually see that everywhere. You know, you don't usually see that as the bumper sticker on the car. You know, you know, agape. You know, he that he that loves my people, I'll bless. But he that hates my people, I'll curse. You don't usually see that. But God keeps all of His promises, not just the happy ones. Verse four, Israel's response, and it came to pass. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, the people lifted up their voice and they wept. And they called the name of that place Mokim, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there unto the Lord. Now, tears don't necessarily always equal repentance. However, I do think this affected them. I do think that this generation generally wanted to do the right things. And so this kept this generation of Israel more on the right track than the wrong track for a while. And so, again, wherever Bochim is, it's likely it was close to the tabernacle because they offer sacrifices right afterwards to the Lord. But, you see, this is why God tells us beforehand to not compromise. Because a little compromise, it goes a long way. And eventually, we get to a place of disobedience where God has to discipline us. And guys, when God has to discipline you, the result of that will be weeping. And if you continue to defy God, you'll become frustrated with him. So like James said, do not make this mistake, my beloved brethren. Let's not make this mistake, my beloved brothers and sisters. Amen? Oh, Lord, we want to be those who give diligence to go unto the very end, Lord, to not just start well, but to continue well and finish well. Lord, you are our king. We bow the knee to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.